I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hey, witches. This week's episode is about rape culture in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. We know that this topic may be triggering for many of you. As always, we encourage you to take care of yourselves first and to skip this episode if that's what you need. Be gentle with yourselves. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, since we are tackling a kind of heavy-duty topic today, I suggest we keep the sorting chat nice and fluffy. So Marcel, tell me, what's the fluffiest thing in your life right now? Oh man, there are a lot of fluffy stuffies in my life right now. Fluffy stuffies. Cute. Once upon a time, the fluffiest thing in my life was um, my cat, Sally, your goddaughter, Hannah. I mean, she's still in your life, and she's still very fluffy. She's still in my life, but, like, I don't get to appreciate and luxuriate in her fluff as often as I used to. Yeah, you don't get to ruffle that fluffle every day. I just invented the word fluffle. I hope you're proud of me. <laughs> ruffle that fluffle. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's Thanks. adorable. Thanks. Next pin. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I also have cats. They're not the fluffiest cats. They're a bit sleek, which, like, honestly, read the room, you guys. And so I want to take this in a metaphorical way and tell you that I watched the entirety of the new season of Bridgerton over the weekend, <gasps> which, if anything, is fluffy. It was fluffy. Oh, yeah. It was so it fluffy. It was so fluffy. It was real fun. It was Mm -hmm. real silly. Mm. You know, I've been a romance novel reader for ages. And what I love about Bridgerton as a series is that it has stayed true to the spirit of romance novels, which is that you got to keep the stakes real low. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. They've just got to be so, so low. Like, 
so that the proportionate intensity can write like particularly a regency romance it's got to be like oh no their hands almost touch uh, mm-hmm. so like nothing else can be high stakes because you have to be really really invested in the fact that like they stood a bit closer together than is generally considered proper whoa yeah sexy <laughs> yeah <laughs> I can't wait to watch it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Just love some fluff. When I was little, my mom's term for farts was fluffs. And so... I've heard... I have heard this. (laughs) I have heard this as being a, like, thing that parents who say that fart is a dirty word, which, like, come on, guys. (laughs) I know definitely a lot of people have their kids say toot. Oh, yeah. We totally say toots in this house. But that's only because it r- it rhymes with magoots. Oh, yeah. Toots magoots is good. Toots magoots is very good. <laughs> but fluff is like, <laughs> it's evocative. Did you fluff? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Who fluffed? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we learn new terms and they are so useful for defining our lived experience that we actually forget that there was ever a time before we had those handy terms in our back pockets. Well, fortunately, we've got revision to help us keep track of what we know and when we learned it. So we're going to draw on our previous discussions about ideology, keeping in mind that ideology is how we see the world. It's our imagined relationship to the real conditions of our existence. So ideology shapes what we take for granted as normal. And how does ideology shape what we take for granted as normal? The sort of tool that ideology uses is Discourse. That's right. Discourse is language that generates knowledge about the world. Discourse is the language we use to talk about the things that ideology tells us are good or bad, right or wrong, etc. And in doing so, discourse enacts power because, surprise, constructing some things as good or real or understandable and others as wrong or delusional or unacceptable is all part of allocating power to some people over others. Now, an important thing to keep in mind about ideology is that the difference isn't people who are constrained by ideology versus those of us who've realized ideology exists and thus are free. We are all inside ideology all the time. And we can shift our ideologies and we can become conscious of them, but we can't get outside of them, which is, I think, a good reminder when you catch yourself even as a really self-aware person, sort of falling into particular kinds of thinking, it's really useful to remember that the whole thing about ideology is that we're all inside it. We can be aware of how discourse is operating on us and we can think critically about it. But um, I think short of like enlightenment, we're not getting outside of ideology anytime soon. Like short of taking a couple grams of mescaline and like going on a three-day trip? I mean, one way to find out, Marcel. You do have six weeks of vacation coming up, Hannah. And, you know, a whole sabbatical in which I'm supposed to be doing research. 
Okay, so the dominant ideology that we're going to be talking about today is rape culture, and we're going to be unpacking more about what that means. But we have already talked about some of the dominant ideologies that contribute to rape culture, things like patriarchy, homophobia, cis sexism, misogyny, racism, and classism. Basically, rape culture has a lot to do with how we think about gender and sexuality and bodies. And so the ideologies that underpin a lot of the assumptions that we make about those things are really going to play in here as well. You know, the main episodes where we've talked about those ideologies are episodes about intersectional feminism and queer theory and class, critical race theory. You know, we've unpacked a lot of the different ways that ideologies frame our whole concept of who's a subject, whose life is considered more important, who is understood as having agency. And those are all questions that are really central to our conversation today. Thanks, Hannah. I think that you've set up a really solid foundation for this conversation. And uh, if you're ready, I'm ready to get into it. Let's do it. All right. This is going to be a hard discussion. So let's first make sure we're feeling comfortable, fed, and hydrated before we head into transfiguration class. Hannah, are you fed, hydrated, and comfortable? I'm hydrated. I'm comfortable. Marcel, are you fed, hydrated, and comfortable? Yes, I am. I'm wearing my comfiest sweats. I've got a giant glass of water, and I had breakfast. Let's do it. Okay, the term rape culture actually originates in the 1970s, but it didn't really become widely used, at least not in popular culture, in like mainstream media, that kind of thing, until around 2012-2013. Hannah, can you guess what caused the term to start circulating so broadly? You know, Marcel, I would never have been able to guess, but you have helpfully put it in the script for me. And so, I believe it was Steubenville. It most certainly was, yes. So what happened in 2013 was uh, two high school students from Steubenville, Ohio, were on trial for sexual assault. And so while this situation itself um, was not new, the trial was earning international attention largely because of the widespread outpouring of sympathy, not for the survivor, but for the two boys convicted of assaulting her. In an article for The New Statesman, written around the time, Lori Penny writes that there was no question of the boys' guilt in this situation. She says there was, and I quote, enough film, photographic, and text message evidence to make the case clear, end quote. And so the role of the defense was never to prove that it didn't happen. Mm. Instead, Penny explains, the defense argued that and I'm quoting again, these boys, beloved athletes in a town where football is everything, did nothing wrong. They are tragic heroes who were just having fun like young men do, and the pictures prove it, end quote. Okay, so the strategy of the defense here was basically to argue that the footage wasn't painting a picture of the defendant's culpability, but was showing that, like, what they were doing was normal? Yes, precisely. So that's where and why the term rape culture becomes really useful. Penny describes Steubenville as rape culture's Abu Ghraib moment. Quote, it's the moment when America and the world are being forced, despite ourselves, to confront the real human horror of the rapes and sexual assaults that take place in their 
thousands every day in our communities, end quote. In other words, Steubenville revealed not only the pervasiveness of sexual violence in our society, but more specifically, the ways that our society takes for granted those behaviors that become sexual violence when taken to their extreme. In this sense, rape culture is about the idea that like society normalizes and trivializes sexual violence. Absolutely, but indirectly. I mean, Steubenville seems pretty direct. Yeah, so that's why Penny is describing this as the Abu Ghraib moment, because it's sort of taking, it's it's making... Made the subtext text. Yes, exactly. Whereas in other cases where there isn't this kind of glaring, inarguable documentation of the violence and of the unacceptability of it, the ways in which society normalizes and trivializes sexual violence are more indirect. Gotcha. So because rape culture is an ideology that's rooted in cis-heteropatriarchy, racism, ableism, classism, sexism, all of those things we talked about in revision, it draws on these systems of oppression to teach us who is or can be a victim, and consequently, who deserves sympathy and who deserves blame. And so this is the function of the indirect normalization, the indirect trivialization, because in some cases, those acts are totally normal and understandable and just what high school kids do. And in other very specific and only extreme circumstances or in other instances where it's easier for us to point blame at someone who doesn't have a lot of power in society already, then we can say, well, okay, in that situation, that is actual violence. That's bad. But in this other situation, that's just that's just boys being boys. Yeah, and that's the discourse in this case that we're talking about, you know, the ideology being rape culture, the discourse is things like boys will be boys or locker room chat, the idea that oh, yeah. that there's something natural and inherent in men's sexual violence and that it can be dismissed as normal because it's because it's normal. And just to be clear, when we say things like actual violence and not actual violence or actual violence and totally normal, like we're using big scare quotes around these terms because we are unpacking the discourse and not justifying it or validating it. Mm-hmm. We're describing it, not not agreeing with it. And that is a really big part of how rape culture works. And I'm sure that we will get into this, but part of how rape culture works is by distinguishing between Um, normal behavior and, quote-unquote, real violence, um, often by distinguishing between normal guys and, like, the rapist who is a monstrous figure. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that. Let's talk more about how this normalizing discourse operates. Yeah. So once we start pulling at the threads of the discourse, we really see how widespread the ideology is and how much it saturates our own lessons and teachings of sexuality. So, for example, rape culture discourse has us believing that it is incumbent upon us to prevent our own sexual assaults. And that's where we hear questions that I'm sure we've all heard before in the media or from other people. What were you wearing? Did you struggle? Were you drinking? Did you watch your drink? Did you cover your drink? Were you wearing that goddamn nail polish that changes color when it comes in contact with rohypnol in your drink, etc.? 
these kinds of questions are always presuming that if we try hard enough and if we are sufficiently cautious, we won't get assaulted, rather than attributing responsibility to the person who commits the assault or to the person who intends to commit assault or the person who is indifferent to consent, that kind of thing. I still remember in high school, we had a two-week self-defense course that was gender segregated. So all of the girls had to take a self-defense course that was taught by two men who were teaching us to, like, physically fight off attackers and so would physically attack us and we had to fight them off. And the boys did martial arts for those two weeks. Are you fucking kidding me? Absolutely not. There was no moment where somebody sat us down and said, so we're going to take the girls aside because you are all potential future assault victims and the boys have nothing to do with that so they can just do something else while that happens. And it's so indicative of the logic of rape culture which is that, I mean, one, that gender is a binary and it consists of people who are vulnerable to sexual violence and people who are not, but also that sexual violence will happen to women and girls, but Mm -hmm. it's always in the passive voice. Mm -hmm. You will be attacked at some point. Mm -hmm. Never clear who will be doing the attacking and whether we might do something about them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that that is part of the way that rape culture feeds into the idea that the only real rapist is a stranger, mm, mm-hmm. like a stranger who is lurking somewhere and you're insufficiently cautious. Which is part of how, you know, that construction of the rapist as a stranger, as a sort of mysterious threat that's going to come at you in a parking lot, you know, which was one of the scenarios we were being taught, you're walking back to the car, not, you know, you're on a date with somebody, you're at a party, the scenarios where it's much more likely to happen. That discourse of the stranger is how things like, for example, uh, systemic racism get tied up into rape culture, right? Because the stranger is often a racialized figure, which is an other onto whom the threat of violence gets projected so that we don't have to collectively grapple with the reality of violence coming from you know, within our own relationships, within our own communities. Mm-hmm. So that's when we get, you know, this fixation on prevention, that the sort of solution to sexual violence is prevention on the part of women, is how it's almost always framed. And the idea that a failure to prevent it is probably your fault because you were probably doing something like, quote, sending mixed signals Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a total trap. Mm-hmm. So we have, on the one hand, all the things that we are told to do to never get sexually assaulted. But then if you somehow do, it's probably because you were giving off quote-unquote mixed signals. And so it wasn't actually sexual assault. Like, the way that the discourse functions is that sexual assault only exists in the realm of the threat— But anything that happens immediately gets dissected in and turned to the other side of the discourse, which is like, he said, she said, or, well, she was asking for it, or God help us blurred lines. And then I'm trying to remember where this came from, but this is a relatively recent one. But when things are rape, rape. Yes, yes. Like it wasn't rape, rape, which speaking back to to what we were saying just a moment ago about 
quote-unquote real violence Mm -hmm. is an attempt to distinguish between acceptable forms of violence and unacceptable Mm -hmm. forms of violence. And those lines of where it becomes unacceptable often has a lot to do with who the perpetrator is and who the victim is as well. Because not only are some people more readily coded as perpetrators, violent, dangerous others, but also some people are more readily coded as victims than others. So I'm sure it's not going to surprise anyone to learn that the same racist hierarchies that give cis, middle-class, able-bodied white people more power and privilege in society likewise gives us more power and believability in the media, the courtroom. Because we are talking about an ideology, we really need to think about the ways that believability and culpability are constructed and circulated in popular culture and in mainstream media. So when I was prepping for this episode, I dug up a handful of articles from around 2013, 2014, um, stuff that I had been using at the time for an article that, as a surprise, never ended up finishing. And I was rereading a piece in the Toronto Star by Marco Chown Ovid and Laura Kane. And I got stuck on this line, which I will quote for you here. Rape culture is embedded in hip-hop videos, beer commercials, and video games. Anything that sends a message that rape is sexy, masculine, and cool. And I was like, wow, amazing. Even in an article that is attempting to dissect the pervasiveness of rape culture, the writers are still feeding right into existing discourses of culpability. Yes, absolutely. So like, even though anyone can listen to hip hop or drink beer or play video games, those are like really racialized images of who whose culture is seeded with sexual violence. Like the image that these things conjure up is either a Black teenage boy or a white teenage boy who's been adversely affected by Black music, not like the entire Western literary canon. Yeah. That's fucked up. It's super fucked up. So like hip hop, beer, and video games do not explain the numerous ways that sexual violence is normalized and trivialized because of power dynamics that we maintain because of this very fancy thing we call tradition. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to call out hazing and frosh week beer tents, but we also super need to unpack the long-standing power imbalances between, for example, teachers and students or supervisors and grad students, religious leaders and congregants, and the accompanying legacies of grooming and abuses of power. And we need to think about the ways that rape culture discourse makes huge demographics of survivors invisible. So like you were saying, Hannah, earlier, we have these discourses that tell us who can be perceived as a victim and who can be perceived as a perpetrator or an aggressor. And in the book Pleasure Activism, Adrienne Marie Brown reminds us that while rape culture is, quote, rooted in toxic masculinity, it is not limited by gender. It's not just men hurting women. People of all genders have been harmed and have caused harm, end quote. So toxic masculinity, amongst many other things, tells us that it's natural for men to want sex, so it follows that they can't be assaulted, which erases, you know, pervasive forms of sexual violence characterized by, say, white women's relationship to Black men, 
during slavery, certainly, but also always. This makes me think about this movie that (laughs) was the first opportunity I ever had as a young person to actually have a conversation about this with my friends. And so it has always stuck with me, which is the movie 40 Days and 40 Nights. I can't remember. It was some heartthrob of the time. And the premise is that he has decided he's going to give up sex for Lent. And then he... Oh, no. I feel like I know where you're going with this, and I don't like it. He, like, falls in love with a woman, and then it becomes this challenge to be like, oh, we, you know, we have to sort of, like, get to know each other without us actually having sex. And, like, the idea is that it, like, deepens the intimacy. But his ex, I think, rapes him in the movie, and it is treated by the film and by all the characters in the film as him cheating on the main love interest and a thing that he has to apologize for. Because the whole premise of the movie is that it is, you know, incredibly difficult for a man to be restraining his sexual desires and that he eventually just breaks, so to speak. I remember watching it with my friends and us being like, what's happening here? This is so clearly not okay why is this a scene in a rom-com? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like the complication in a rom-com that needs to be overcome. You know, that was the first time that I was like, oh yeah, because there is this construction of men as unrapeable or of sexual violence towards men as a punchline. Like the shocking ongoing prevalence of don't drop the soap prison jokes. Yeah, we can think about, like, Family Guy as another example, a pop culture phenomenon in which women's violence against men is a punchline as opposed to something to make us pause. And, you know, I know, like, a lot of activists and a lot of researchers and scholars have argued that this comes out of a lack of comprehensive sex education that takes consent seriously. Like, we don't teach young people what it is to consent. And as a result, I think a lot of us come out of adolescence and puberty with like really fucked up understandings of what consent is or like without an understanding at all of what consent is. And so as a result, there's so little foundation to our ability to like negotiate any kind of physical intimacy that it really shouldn't surprise any of us that we have such a pervasive rape culture, that we live in such a pervasive rape culture. Yeah, absolutely. This ties in for me with the conversations about teaching, well, at least in Canada, the acronym is SOGI, which is Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Teaching that in school, there's a huge amount of protests against, maybe that's just a BC acronym. It's definitely what we call it in BC. But it's, you know, it's a curriculum discussion about what can be taught to children in schools. And there's you know, a resistance to teaching children about sexual orientation and gender identity. And that ties into rape culture in a lot of ways, because not teaching children about sex and gender ends up getting tied up with not teaching children about their bodies, about bodily autonomy, about consent, about pleasure. And I think, you know, it leaves lessons about things like gender and violence to pop culture, which is like, does a very bad job. Terrible. But it also ties in, you know, when we think back to this essentialized construction of the perpetrator as male and the victim as female, 
the sort of construction of women as always needing to be coerced into sex and always a little bit vulnerable to violence, and then men as always wanting sex and as naturally a bit violent. One of many things that results from that is a deeply transphobic erasure of the sexual violence experienced by trans women. Absolutely, yeah. And we see that playing out in the way that a lot of, like, you know, sexual violence support centers won't support trans women or non-binary people. The way that the exclusion of trans women from a lot of spaces is justified according to this biological essentialist notion that trans women are quote-unquote really men and thus that they must be violent perpetrators and that their desire to enter women's spaces comes from a desire to do violence in those spaces. And that that is another way that trans women are made particularly vulnerable to forms of violence and that that violence is not rendered legible according to a lot of our cultural scripts about what sexual violence actually looks like. Yeah, yeah. So as is always going to be the case, whenever we're tackling a big and broad issue for the first time, we're really just scratching the surface, like touching on just a handful of key points. So here are the things that I want us to keep in mind as we head into OWLs. Rape culture is an ideology. We see it operating through discourse. Rape culture discourse determines pathos and culpability. So in other words, who can be a victim and who can be a perpetrator? Or who do we take for granted as quote-unquote innocent and who do we presume as quote-unquote guilty? And then the final thing, which is probably the (laughs) most important transitional part, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince was published in 2005, which is well before the term rape culture was something that we, like, heard in the news, talked about in social media, talked about in social groups, that kind of thing. So I really want us to think about how rape culture as an ideology underpins this novel's depictions and implications of gender, sex, and power. And shows us that, in fact, rape culture is not something that is perpetuated exclusively through hip-hop videos, but in fact is really central to a lot of touchstones of white culture. Yeah. Yeah. Are you feeling ready, Hannah? I'm ready. Let's do it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Our conversation is going to continue to be pretty heavy. So let's just really take a moment and relax with the sound of owls. Owls. And just one more. (laughs) So there is so much to talk about in this book. Yeah. Because this is the book that is about 
I mean, puberty, basically. It's about the, you know, moment when all of these students sort of start understanding themselves and one another as sexual. Mm -hmm. And all of the ways that the book frames sexuality, romance, crushes as a sort of natural part of young people's lives tells us just a shit ton about the discourses that contribute to rape culture as an ideology. I mean, as well as other ideologies, like heteronormativity is like powerfully at play here. Cisnormativity, of course, uh, amatonormativity, the assumption that everybody, that it's a sort of natural phase in people's lives to begin to desire a romantic or sexual partner, all of these ways that it's naturalized. But we are going to look at some of the things that happen in this book that are really naturalizing rape culture. And maybe we should start with the uh, the funny recurring joke where all of Jenny's brothers are furious at her for having boyfriends. Yeah. So what what the fuck is up with that? You know what? Okay, I have a suggestion. Mm. <laughs> Let's play a game. I'm just going to say <laughs> things that happen and then I'm going to say what the fuck is up with that. Is that the game? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, one of us will say things that happen and then follow that with what the fuck is up with that, and then the other person will tie it to rape culture. Great. What a fun game. We're fun. When people say that feminists are fun, this is what they're talking about. All right, so you were just saying all of Ginny's brothers are mad at her for having boyfriends. What the fuck is up with that? Let me tell you. What the fuck is up with that is that in rape culture, women are not allowed to want to be sexual with anybody. And if you are, you are putting yourself at risk or you are making yourself more vulnerable to sexual violence. And so all of the brothers need to therefore swoop in and protect poor little Ginny, who clearly doesn't know her own mind or body. That's what the fuck. Also, women are possessions. And so the constant fight is between family members who need to keep their possessions untouched and then other men who want to touch those possessions. That is the root of every joke that's like, as soon as your daughter turns 16, you're going to need to get a gun. And the fact that Harry, like, wants to ask Ron permission mm-hmm. to date his sister. Mm-hmm. And I know it's complicated because friendships and stuff, but... Yeah, Ginny's absolutely treated as as a thing by the men in this book. I will say that Ginny herself is like, hey guys, you're being deeply hypocritical about this. Yes. So there is, yeah. there is some pushback on that front that she not only doesn't stop dating, but overtly states, you know, this is a double standard that you are applying to me because I am a girl. Love that. Okay, I've got one. This book is a lot about love potions. Oh, sure is. We are first introduced to love potions at Weasley's Wizard Wheezes, but I want to talk, I have a question about when Slughorn introduces Amortentia to the classroom and refers to it as, like, the most dangerous potion in the room or whatever. But it's not framed as, like, no, seriously, this is dangerous. Instead, it's like, oh, 
you might not believe me, what the fuck is up with that? Okay, so what I think is up with that is a larger framing of desire as something that renders you out of control. So the reason this love potion is dangerous is not because it takes people's consent away. It's because love is dangerous, because love makes you act irrationally, etc. And what that narrative does, again, is normalize sexual violence under the name of passion, love, being carried away by your feelings, being Mm -hmm. overwhelmed, which is a sort of, you know, an understanding of love that has a very, very long history going back to the, like, chivalric tradition, which is basically, like, a series of cultural norms put in place to, like, reduce the rate of rape. Like, so at the heart is this assumption that unless there's some external force controlling you, When you love somebody, you will behave uncontrollably towards them. Mm -hmm. Which we see when Ron takes a love potion and immediately becomes out of control. Like, violent, irrational, nothing can be done for it. Ugh, gross. Okay, so here's a distressing scene. You know that first time that Harry sees Draco with two first-year girls that are actually Crab and Goyle under the influence of Polyjuice Potion. And that is supposed to be funny because they look upset because they're being made to be girls, which is supposed to be funny. But they're described as looking like they don't want to be there. So Harry sees a sixth-year, who he knows is up to something insidious, bringing two upset-looking first-year girls into the castle with him, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't do anything about it. No. No. What the fuck is up with that? Yeah, I want, in another episode, to talk about how, like, deeply transphobic this book is, and this, like, recurring situation of Crab and Goyle being polyjuiced and turned into 11-year-old girls is, like, a really key part of it. And this scene where Harry is upset because he doesn't know what Draco is up to, but everybody's like, Harry, leave it alone. It's not a big deal. Nobody is like, gross, what is Malfoy doing with two little girls? Yeah, like, if nothing else, is he going to do weird dark magic to them? Like, come on! At no point is anybody like, maybe we should tell a teacher that a 16-year-old is making 11-year-olds do things that they don't look like they want to do. It's really distressing. Yeah, it's fucked. Okay, here's one. Harry's experience of his attraction to Jenny. There's a lot of aspects, as we have discussed, of these books that we have to take with a grain of salt because Harry is not always the most reliable narrator. But we have to assume that when he tells us how he is feeling, that he is at least reliably expressing those experiences. I think that that was, like, largely the message of the fifth book, right? That, like, Harry experiences things, we believe them. Mm -hmm. So... The way that Harry experiences his attraction to Ginny is in the context of jealousy and anger. Mm -hmm. So he describes it as this 
like roaring monster in his chest that is constantly like telling him to do violent things um that is telling him to to be aggressive towards dean that is you know telling him to not care about his relationship with ron and that is only satisfied by the ultimate acquisition of Ginny. Acquisition of Ginny, I think, is, like, the most apt phrasing. So what the fuck is up with that? I think that, unlike the times when Ginny was dating Michael Corner, who, like, I don't think we're ever told explicitly, like, if he's white or not, but the fact that we do know that Dean Thomas is Black, I think, tells us that there's some, like, pretty significant racist undertones to Harry's reaction to seeing Ginny with Dean. I also feel really uncomfortable with the fact that Harry doesn't realize that he like likes Ginny until he's angry and jealous, as opposed to like they had so much fun together over the summer. You know, like that scene right at the beginning when he's like, oh, we had so much fun over the summer. I forgot that I don't normally hang out with Ginny. Like, that would have been a very, like, a really nice opportunity to be like, I, oh, I think, I think I like, like her. I want to spend more time with her, as opposed to, oh, my God. Somebody else got her. She's kissing another person. That is a trope, right? Like, that is a really common trope in romantic narratives of, like, not realizing that you want somebody until somebody else has them. But... One thing that that trope normalizes is the equation of, like, attraction and violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we can fold that right into Ron's reaction when he learns that Hermione kissed Victor Crumb, right? Like, like Ron is real mad, real aggressive, and really cruel, to Hermione. And at one point, Harry even tells us, like, he doesn't know how to explain that the thing that Hermione did wrong was, like, two years ago. Mm-hmm. It, like, happened so long ago, and Ron didn't know about it until recently. And the response, his response, which is to revenge date Lavender, is, I mean, again, a sort of ongoing use of women as objects. But also, God, this text treats Lavender with such disdain for just, like, being into him. She likes him and wants to, like, give him gifts and spend time with him. And that is treated as being, like, so silly and embarrassing of her. Mm -hmm. Whereas the male character's, like, aggressive, angry desire is not treated as, like, a silly childish impulse in the same way? No, no, not until Ron drinks the love potion and then starts to act silly. And we initially think that he's acting silly about lavender. And then we realize, oh, no, 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 no. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. This is a love potion. Ron isn't actually like this. This is Ramilda Vane. I feel like there's one last big piece of this novel that we have got to talk about. In part, I really want to give it a little bit of time because 
We talked about it really briefly in the original run of this series, and I don't think sort of gave it the the time and the space that it needs as a plot point. Mm-hmm. And that is the revelation that Tom Riddle Sr. most likely ran away with Marope against his will. Mm-hmm. That the implication, you know, it's it's there as subtext, is that she was very good with love potions, the subtext, you know, Dumbledore specifies, like, she is a powerful witch in her own right. And so there's a strong implication that she used some sort of magic to make him run away with her. And that he left when she stopped using that magic on him and he realized what she had done. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is definitely assault. Yeah, I remember in the original run, I really lost track of the fact that that was assault. I mean, the text doesn't know it. I don't know if the book knows it. Yeah, I think that's fair, right? Like Dumbledore says that he thinks that a love potion might have seemed romantic to Marope. And so in our conversation, I remember saying that Tom Riddle was like a deadbeat for abandoning his pregnant wife. And it was actually one of our listeners who was like, hey, um, if I... I had the opportunity to escape my rapist. I would also do that. And I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This is not a consenting relationship that turns sour. This is not like a, a temporary fling that they have. And then when things get serious, he runs away. This is like one person has compelled another yeah. to actually engage in sex. And we know, based on textual evidence, that when they have the opportunity, that Tom Riddle leaves and has no interest in returning. You know, the fact that it makes sense that Tom Riddle Sr. would leave once Marope stopped using magic on him doesn't then mean that Tom Riddle Jr. deserved to be abandoned, because that's the flip side of it, right? And there is a fan theory that I know that we've encountered that is that part of the root of Voldemort's evil is the fact that he was conceived through violence. And that is a really troubling concept. That idea that the violence of how somebody is conceived would actually shape the person that they are, rather than, you know, like the fact that ultimately he does end up with no parents, you know, that neither of his parents are there to care for him, nor is he put into another stable, loving situation and, you know, grows up in quite a seemingly kind of scary situation. The nature of his conception has nothing to do with that. And what's really important here, I think, is that that fan theory is treating rape as unusual, as so exceptional and rare that it can be part of the explanation for the most evil wizard that ever lived. And in that framing, we've got to understand it as being something that, like, akin to murdering people to rip your own soul apart can account for a magical transformation of some sort, that it turned him into something he wouldn't have already been. And what that fails to recognize is that until very, very recently, legally, spouses couldn't 
rape one another. That wasn't even conceived of as rape. So the treating of it as exceptional and thus assuming that anybody who is a product of violence will be, you know, marked by it in some way, I think also constructs a world in which we are not, many of us, products of that kind of violence. The reality is, and this is something that rape culture as a concept helps us grapple with, is that sexual violence is much more widespread, much more banal, much more common than the discourse would have us understand. I just want to take a minute to imagine for a moment how different, not just the subtext, but like the text about love potions in this book could have been if the point at which Merope stopped being able to use magic after Tom Riddle Sr. leaves her was not framed in terms of a broken heart, but was framed instead as like a consequence of her guilt or her regret for violating the bodily autonomy of this man who apparently she loved. I feel like so much of the book up until that point could have remained the same, and then we could have had an opportunity for this like really useful paradigm shift where all of a sudden we're like, oh, wait, people can actually take responsibility or can actually feel culpable for the violations that they enact on other people. And like, that's not really a conversation that we are going to get in the framing of like, oh, well, her heart was broken and so she couldn't even use magic to save her life. Completely. And that would have given us at least some countertext to the way that love potions show up in the rest of the book to be like, oh, you know, there are these love potions, they've been circulating, they've been treated like this light thing. But actually, let's see what the consequences can be, or let's see somebody come to the realization at some point that taking somebody's capacity to consent away is a really violent act, not just kids being kids, just, you know, just the way we are when we're swept away by our feelings. Yeah, not women just being too romantic. Yeah, I mean, I think what all of these examples really drive home for us is that idea that it's in pop culture that we get a lot of the discursive working out of rape culture and the ongoing profound decentering of conversations about consent, about bodily autonomy, about healthy ways to come into our sexuality and to experience it in a way that is freed from shame, but also from compulsion. Whether or not we think, you know, that it's the job of YA literature to be modeling something better, we can certainly see how uncritically this book is modeling something worse. And making that bad thing, treating it like just the way things are, the natural relationships between boys and girls and between men and women. I think it's really telling that Marope's story is largely extracted from the film because, as we've joked, the film version of Half-Blood Prince is a teen sex romperoo. It's all just like teens hot for one another and getting excited about kissing. And I don't think that that could have been the tone of the movie if at its core was this 
narrative of like ongoing date rape. Even though at the time, I think that we were not as a society quite as ready to dissect rape culture, you know, when the movie came out, I think that it still says a lot that they had to omit this very, very significant narrative from the film version. Or chose to. That's already a a movie that has a lot of um, sharp tonal shifts. Some real uh, sort of whiplash-inducing sudden reversals of tone. And, you know, Marope's story is even too dark for that. You know, I never feel more like a feminist killjoy than when I'm pointing out rape culture. Like, there's nothing that makes me feel more like a, hey, this thing you thought was nice, it's bad. But that, again, that framing of like, oh, well, this book, it turns out, is bad. It comes from the same impulse as that, like, oh, well, this book is complicit in rape culture, and so we must set it aside as villainous and bad. It comes from comes from that same exceptionalist thinking. Totally, yeah. And the point is that it's not just this book. It's, like, everything. It's everything, and it's everywhere. It's woven into the texture of our society. And so what we can do is notice it as a really powerful first step. Draw attention to it. Talk about it. Like the fact that we can have this conversation about a Harry Potter novel should tell us just how saturated our culture is with this sort of like normalized sexual violence, right? Like it's not a music video that we can wag our finger at It's part of a beloved young adult children's series. Yeah. And as is almost always the case with learning how to get at the root of harmful ideologies that have been normalized is that you got to start noticing them. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes by visiting the podcast section of the Wilfrid Laurier University Press website or, as always, on your podcast listening platform of choice. Special thanks to Wilfrid Laurier University Press for having us and to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We are endlessly grateful to all of you helping us to make this show financially sustainable. Patrons can look forward to hours of solid gold bonus content and some new Patreon-exclusive merch in the weeks to come. Check out patreon.com slash ohwitchplease if you want to learn more. If you're not able to contribute financially, but you still want to lend us a hand, we would absolutely love it if you dropped us a review on Apple Podcasts. At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel strumming my pain with her fingers, singing my life with her words, killing me softly with... These usernames! (laughs) Thanks this week to... Real hydrops, real hydrocyced, real hydrocyced. No turfs allowed. Owl emoji, owl emoji, cat emoji, wand emoji, fruit, poppy pop pop, and Paris Gapmire.
which I wonder if it's like Paris Gapia. Oh, Gapia. <laughs> I went on a, a Gapia to Paris. A Gapia. <laughs> we'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. But until then... Later, witches.